Before time itself was measured, the voice was speaking. His speech colored the canvas of the cosmos. His breath filled all things with a living, breathing light. But this new creation, the very good dwelling in delight, reached for mouth-watering wisdom and took a bite. With paradise behind them, they trod the dirt from which they'd been made, hoping, praying someday the voice would enter our world. He did, and nothing would ever be the same. The Grand Universal Theory, a.k.a. the Theory of Everything. Have you heard about it? Dr. Richard Swenson, who is a physician, a physicist, a futurist, he's a really smart guy, uh, but most importantly, a follower of Christ, tells us that a lot of scientists have been pouring all kinds of money and research into trying to understand what is it that's behind our lives, behind the universe? What is the theory of everything? It is said that whoever can figure that out will be as great as Albert Einstein was and is. Uh, by the way, Albert Einstein spent the last 25 years of his life trying to figure out the theory of everything and didn't succeed. But the late physicist Stephen Hawking believes that well, it's going to be discovered very soon. In his book, A Brief History of Time, he says this. He says, if we do discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable in broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, so I guess he was thinking about me, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of, look at the emphasis, human reasoning. For then we would know the mind of God. Now, Swenson points out that even though he mentions the mind of God, Stephen Hawking did not believe in God nor a life after death. It's just that he had a habit sometimes of thinking or talking about God. Maybe a Freudian slip, I don't know. But the question is, is there really a theory of everything? I want to welcome you back to the first season and the first message of our grand series that I introduced last weekend from Head to Leb most important journey of your life. Now, if you weren't with us last weekend, you might be wondering to yourself, what on earth is a leb, L-E-B? Well, leb is the Hebrew word for one's heart. It's that place in our lives where three streams converge, our thinking life, our intellect, our emotional life, our feelings, and our volitional life, or our will. It's that most interior part of our lives where we contemplate, why am I here? What is life all about? What's behind the universe? What's my worth and what's my identity? You know, the kinds of things that you think about and I think about and we all think about. And really, everybody's trying to find a reason behind that. You know, that part of our life that I'm describing to you is 
easily influenced by outward forces. What I mean by that is we are not born with a preset view of ourselves and view of the world. We are molded by our infinite environment that's all around us. And it starts at a really young age. In fact, I was just uh, reading about something known as the PEPA effect. I I don't know if you've heard of the PEPA effect, but it happened uh, with COVID. So many preschoolers had so much time on their hands at home that they binged watching this British cartoon called Peppa Pig. And it's had a tremendous effect on American kids because you've got all these American preschoolers that are running around with British accents. So instead of saying to their mom, uh, hey, mom, let's try that, it's kind of like, mommy, let's give it a go. Or instead of, can I push the button in the elevator, it's like, can I push the button in the lift? Or instead of, I have to go to the bathroom, it's, I need to use the water closet. Now, if you didn't like my accent, that's because I've not been watching much Peppa Pig. But I've seen the video of these kids, and it's absolutely hilarious. It looks like they just got off the boat or off the plane, and they're they're straight from England. Their accents are so great. Well, that just reminds us of how quickly and how easily we are influenced by the world around us. You know, everything we know and experience inwardly is a result of the outward influences on our lives. And so that then begins to beg these questions of who is influencing our lives. What is speaking into our lives? What from the media? What from social media? What you know, are our parents influencing us with? Our politicians, our professors, our peers, celebrities, the people that we kind of look up to. We are so susceptible. We're kind of like the old transistor radios, right? Our antenna is up. And whatever wavelengths are tuned in is kind of what we produce and what comes out. And so the question is, you know, where is my ear tuned? Who is my ear tuned into? What is my ear tuned into? And last weekend, I tried to paint for you this picture from John chapter 13. Do you remember that? John uh, leans over with his head on the chest of Jesus. And the Greek word there is stethos, from which we get stethos scope. And as he rests his head on Jesus' chest to ask him who it is that's going to betray, which one of them is going to betray Jesus, the picture I wanted you to grab was his his ear against the chest of Jesus and hearing the heartbeat of God. And I asked you a question that I've been asking myself. How often do we take time to, to just rest our head and listen to the heart of God? A friend of mine sent me in this amazing picture that's another way of thinking about listening to the heart of God. I want to share it with you. Now, it's kind of a historical picture. Uh, This is Dr. Albert Nast, who's a blind physician, and he's got his ear pressed against this little three-month-old baby. I love the expression on the child's face, but, you know, we might look at somebody like Dr. Nast and say, oh, he's blind, he can't see. And while we might think about that as being something weak, it's actually it's actually a strength in that it makes all the rest of his, his senses so much more acute. So his hearing is more intense than somebody who could see and have all their senses. And I just love that picture of his head resting up against the back of that little baby, listening to the breath sounds and listening to that precious heartbeat. And I, I look at this in two ways. I think about God resting his head on on my, on my back, on my chest, and listening for my heartbeat, you know, 
Who am I listening to? Who am I taking direction from? Who am I believing? But then I picture myself resting my head on the chest of God and listening to his heartbeat and what it is he wants to say to me and what he wants to say to you as well. You see, we live in a world right now that is shouting at us, that is screaming at us, that is so loud and and it's saying to us, listen to us, listen to us, listen to our ideas, listen to what we believe, listen to what we say is behind everything. And the world does not believe that God is behind everything. The world does not believe that that there even is a God. God to the world, to, to materialism, to secularism, is a hypothesis, not a reality. And so while you and I, many of us, might say, well, I already believe that God is. I've read the books. I, I'm convinced that God is. I, I want you to remember your kids, your grandkids. You know, we're not just about ourselves. We're about the next generation as well. I want you to think about those who don't have the luxury of what you have in terms of the teaching of God's word and the truth of God's word and maybe a good Christian upbringing. They're so susceptible to all those things that are being said out there. And God is saying, I want your ear. God is saying, come and and listen to me and what I have to say. As I was thinking about that, uh, in my mind I thought about some questions that forces me to ask and and think about a little bit. And I want to share a couple of questions with you. Here's the first one. If God doesn't exist, well, then how do we explain how we all got here? If you ever thought about that, I'm sure you have. If we're going to dismiss God, if we're going to listen to the world and say God's just a hypothesis, how are we going to explain how we got here? Are you satisfied with the fact that it's just an accident? Or number two, how do you talk to your children about the meaning of life when they are hearing from professors and peers that he doesn't exist? Or if he does, he cannot really be known. And the Bible is just a bunch of myths anyway. Or how do we know that we as Christians are right about God and everyone else is wrong? You see, your sons and daughters your friends who may not know Christ or are agnostic, they just, they're not sure there could be a God, there might not be a God. Those are things that just kind of swim around in their minds. And the good news for us as we launch into this first season I'm calling Beginnings is that John deals with this because in John's day there were people asking the same kind of question except they posed it like this. They said, you know, what is the logos of life? What is the logic? What is the, what is the reasoning behind life? Why I'm here? Why this universe is here? Why the sky exists? Why, why is there anything and everything? Kind of almost like a formula. If you're going to put it into a little formula, you would say, you know, what is the meaning, right, of life? And they were trying to fill in this part of the formula. This part, you know, is it this logos And as you look at the ancient thinkers, the ancient Greek thinkers, what you discover is many of them concluded there is no logos, there's no logic to why we're here. And then there are others who said, well, there is, but it's so abstract, you can't really know it. Kind of like what we think of in Star Wars, the force. There's some force out there, but it's so distant, it's so far, we can't really understand or appreciate it. 
So for instance, let, let me give an example. If you go back to about the year 309 BC, you meet this guy named uh, Epicurus. And Epicurus doesn't believe there's anything behind why we're all here. We're just a bunch of atoms, matter that's kind of put together. And so his philosophy was, you know, life is all about pleasure. It's all about enjoying the most you can out of whatever you have. And then that got taken to an extreme, to what we call hedonism, which is eat, drink, be merry today, for tomorrow you die, which is this whole idea, Epicureanism, is just indulge your flesh as much as you want, as much as you can, because you only go around once in life, and then it's over. Then you die, and, you know, the atoms that make up your body get reabsorbed into the, you know, into the atmosphere or into the ground and become part of something else. That was Epicureanism. Then there are others, though, the Stoics, uh, founded by Zeno, a Citium, in about 300 B.C., and they, they weren't sure there was something out there. They, they thought about God as being kind of an, a, in more of an abstract way, as a, as a force that's kind of lingering out there. It may be personal, may not be personal, we just don't know. But hey, listen, we can't all go running around living by our feelings and indulging our desires. So for them, the meaning of life was to control your desires, and I was trying to think, you know, who would best represent a Stoic? And maybe you're old enough to remember the old Star Trek television show, but remember Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy? He was part human and part Vulcan, right? And, and the human part of him wanted to express and show emotions and react with feelings. The Vulcan part of him was always trying to keep things under control and be very logical about life. Well, that was then. <laughs> this is now. I mean, I'm sure that now in the 21st century, we're so much smarter. We've come so much further in our knowledge and our thinking. And while I was thinking about that, I was reminded of these words in Ecclesiastes where it says, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new. But actually, it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. And the writer is correct. It's just more sophisticated today. It's just said in a different way. But if you listen to the heartbeat of secularism, which influences all of higher education and universities, and where your students go, and what they read, and what they're taught. It influences politics, it influences the economy, it influences culture. If you listen to secularism today, it's just a restatement of that stuff I told you about earlier. It just said and put in a different way. So I came across some, some people who have had a lot of influence on materialism, what uh, Tim Keller calls scientism and what uh, Greg Kokel, the apologist, calls materism, okay? And uh, I want to share some of their quotes. And it's not important that you know who they are as much as you hear what they're saying. So take, for instance, Jacques Monod. He was a, um, biolo a, a uh, biological molecularist, and uh, he wrote this, all right? He said, Man knows at last that 
He is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe from which he emerged by chance. His destiny is nowhere spelled out, nor is his duty. The kingdom above or the darkness below, ah, it is for him to choose. So here's this molecular biologist. I got my terms turned around a few minutes ago trying to just tell us, and he's a Nobel Prize winner, that, you know, it's, we're, just, we're just physical science. We're just atoms and molecules and biology, and there's nothing else. Or take uh, George Gaylord Simpson, considered to be the greatest paleontologist of the 20th century. He said, it is already evident that all the objective phenomena of the history of life can be explained by purely naturalistic or materialistic factors. Therefore, mankind is a result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Or we could look at Carl Sagan. Popular scientist, passed away. He was doing a documentary for PBS on the cosmos. And here's what he said. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. And then you can't leave out the very popular atheist and scientist Richard Dawkins who said this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. And other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Don't invite him to a party. So why did I give you a smattering of these intellectuals, these scientists, these secularists, and what they said and what they've done. Well, it's because what they said and what they've done has had such a profound influence on our culture and it's driving so much of what we experience today. I've mentioned it before, but Philip Reef is probably the greatest sociologist this country has ever produced. And in the 1960s, he could see what was happening. And by the way, as far as I know, he was not a Christian. But he said that if we continue to believe that there is no moral absolute, that there is no moral law giver, that it truly is a matter of chance and luck and evolution, then he said what it will eventually lead to is the individualization of humanity. And we will turn to our own feelings and everything will be about our feelings and indulging my feelings and I will become my own source of truth. And he said, it will ultimately lead to chaos. I think he's being very prophetic. Yeah, the chaos of the 60s, yes, but look at the chaos we're experiencing in our country and our world today. Look at the confusion. Look at the heartache. Look at the anxiety. Look at the stress. You know, the world says, listen to the heart of the scientists. Listen to the heart of the secularists. Listen to the heart of the humanist. This is the truth. And when we rest our ear on that heartbeat, it does not make life better. It does not improve life. It just leads to discouragement, to depression, to violence, to anxiety, 
to a sense of lawlessness, to a sense of hopelessness, and everything that we are now witnessing. Don't blame God for it. Don't blame the Bible for it. Don't blame Christians for it. It is all the result of people not listening with their leb to the leb, the heart and the mind of God himself. You know, it was predicted that as time went by, that by now we would, we would laugh at the idea of God. It was predicted by secularists long ago that by now religion would be fading away as we finally had the truth. But do you know there is more intense pursuit of spiritual answers today than there ever has been before? Why is that? I go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and I find that it says in chapter 3, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. So no matter what Dawkins says or anybody else says, it is wired in us. It's instinctual in us. There's just something in us that says, God is, God is, God is. And you've got to really suppress that. You've got to really convince yourself of something else to, you know, to put that haunting voice aside. But it's wired in us that God is. And we need to put our ear to what God reveals about himself to us. I put the statement down. It's a truth that's waiting to be believed. It's a truth that's waiting to be received. And it's a truth that needs to be declared. See, we're not talking here about the theory of everything. What we're talking about is the truth of everything. I don't believe in a theory of everything, but I believe in a truth about everything. And that's what John gets to as he opens up his narrative about Jesus. He wants us to understand that Jesus is the truth about everything. And so in John chapter 1, he begins like this. He says, in the beginning was the word, and he uses the Greek word logos. Now, even though John's using the Greek term logos, logic, reasoning, he has a Hebrew mindset as well, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But in the beginning, the logos, the word, and now he's referring to Jesus, the living word, Okay, So he's saying that Jesus is the meaning behind life. In the beginning, the word Logos already existed. The word Logos was with God, and the word Logos was God. Now, next weekend, we're going to dig into this a little bit more. and We're going to have a very challenging message on how can Jesus be God and man at the same time. If you've ever wondered that, you don't want to miss next weekend. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word, logos, gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So John is saying, everybody's wondering, what is life all about? What does my life mean? How did I get here? 
And he's saying, I am here to tell you. I'm here to declare it to you. The reason behind the universe is Jesus. I mean, even Paul picks up on this in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Do you hear it from John? Do you hear it from Paul? There's just this sense that they, they want us to know that Christ has always been. So if you were to think about it in terms of a formula, what John is saying in essence is this. He's saying, if you want to know what the meaning of life is, all right, if you want to know what the meaning of life is, the answer to the question is, the meaning of life is Jesus. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus. Now, I said a few moments ago that when John wrote this, he has in the back of his mind also a Hebrew mindset. So, for the Hebrew mind, God was not something abstract. The Hebrew mind believed that behind everything, yes, there is God. But as you read the scriptures carefully, what you begin to see is that pretty soon, the Hebrew mind began to think about the Torah, the law of God. And that became the reason and the meaning behind everything. And so that's why when Jesus shows up and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And says that he is the Son of God, the one who has always been. That's why they, they crucify him. Because they already had their salvation. It's the law. And this idea that Jesus would call himself God, that was blasphemy. Next weekend, we'll look at why it was not blasphemy. Why he could, why he could be man and God. Why God is one, though three. But for now, but for now, John wants us to know, and Paul wants us to know, that the meaning behind life the Logos, the reason behind this world, is a personal relationship with Jesus. To know why I exist, to know why this world is here, requires that I be in a personal relationship with Christ. And, you know, as followers of Christ, we've got to be careful because we have a tendency to do the same thing that we accuse the Jews of doing. We have sometimes a tendency to put the word of God out here and say that the word of God is the reason behind life. And I mean the Bible, the printed page, the, the words of scripture. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I love the word of God. It is God's specific revelation revealing Christ to me. But you know, sometimes 
Sometimes we make the Bible, we make the scriptures, we make the word, the knowledge more important than the relationship. And when that happens, then the Bible becomes an academic book to us. It becomes a book of interesting literature and facts and figures and things to argue about and talk about and theology to get behind. I guess the way I would illustrate it is, what if I only ever read about my wife, Marcia? And what if I only had a portrait picture of her and that's all I ever had? I never met her. I never held her. I never hugged her. I never kissed her. I never saw her. All I had was what I could read about her and a picture of what I thought she looked like. You know, it would be very hard for me to have much of a relationship with her because all I have is what's written about her. I need more than what is written about her. I need more than just a picture of her. I need her. I need that relationship with her. And there are just so many believers today that I think are are stuck with a description about God. They kind of have a picture in their mind about God they get from Bible studies and sermons, but there's no palpable relationship. There's no sense of, of being in love with the Lord, and I mean that in the best way. Being in a loving relationship with the Lord. Hearing his heartbeat. Being aware of his presence. See, that's one of the things that, that defined the early Christians in their day. Even though they were persecuted and tortured. You know, there were secularists who wrote about them in their day and said, We don't know what to make of these Christians because they smile as they are put to death, as they are led to the lions. They have a peace, a joy about them. What is it about these Christians? And when the plagues came and everybody ran away from the cities and left the sick and the dying, these Christians stayed. The writers today couldn't figure that out. Why do they stay? And and get sick and and die caring for those who are going to die anyways. It's because these Christians were in a relationship with God. They heard the heartbeat of God. They were intoxicated with the love of God. And John, who wrote his gospel, also wrote three other little letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in which he talks an awful lot about the love of God. Because it's all about relationship. And I want to read to you part of his letters. In 1 John, he writes these words. He says, But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. These people belong to this world. So they speak from the world's viewpoint And the world listens to them. He's talking about people who are anti-Jesus, anti-Christ, anti-God. Who are saying, come and listen to us. We'll tell you what life is all about. He says, but we belong to God. And those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception We know how much God loves us. We have put our trust in his love. God, he says, is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Now, you got to stop and just think about that for a moment, don't you? 
In other passages, Paul says that, you know, God is over us, in us, and through us. John's telling us that God's love is in us. And as we live in God and our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he first loved us. It's like all I can do is talk about love. And how he's loved by God and how I'm loved by God and you're loved by God. Remember John called himself disciple whom Jesus loved. It's because John was in this relationship with Christ. He wants you to be in this relationship with Christ. He wants you to operate out of the love of God that has filled your life. Which just changes your perspective entirely, doesn't it? And yet so many hearts, as we talked about last weekend, and the hearts of Christians are so anxious, so fearful, so worried, so threatened. Why is that? Well, I have an answer for you from my own life, an experience that happened to me this summer. Uh, my wife, Marcia, and I spent some time down in Texas at our daughter and husband's place with our two grandchildren, uh, taking care of them while their mom and dad went on a vacation. And um, every morning, I would go on the, uh, outside the front door of my daughter's house, and I would sit on this bench that she has there, and I would have my quiet time. I'd have my cup of tea, I'd have my notebook, my journal, and God's word, and this is the view that I, I had every morning. I would kind of look out across their yard, and there's a, a bird feeder over here, and, and um, you know, trees, and rocks, and etc., and beautiful flowers they planted, and trees, and early, early in the morning, this is actually an evening picture, but, but early in the morning, there were these low-hanging clouds that, that would be over here, and the sun would be coming from behind. It would light up the underbelly of the clouds. It, just, it was just so beautiful. And God began to really speak to my heart every morning and invite me, invite me to, to enjoy his presence and to practice his presence. And God reminded me about how busy I can get and how my mind can become so occupied with other kinds of things that I lose that sense of God's presence. I lose my awareness of him. It's easy for me to start to give my ear to all kinds of other noise. And there's a lot of noise out there. And all kinds of worries that that noise creates and anxieties that, that word, those words create. And one day as I was trying to focus on just being aware of God's presence and enjoying that, something happened. I saw him. I saw a squirrel. You thought I was going to say I saw Jesus. No, I saw a squirrel. Now, I need to let you know that I dislike squirrels. They have robbed my bird feeder at home for two summers now, and I've tried everything to get rid of those rascals so I can feed my beautiful birds. So I am, I am anti-squirrel, okay? I hate squirrels. I just admit it. It's a bad word to use, but I really, I can't stand squirrels. So I'll go back to my picture here. He uh, comes out of a tree over here, all right? 
and he crosses the street behind this bush, and he stops right there, and he stands up, and he looks over at me, sitting on the bench. And I look over at him, and I know what's going through his mind. There's the bird feeder, free breakfast. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to try to get to the bird feeder. While at the same time, I'm trying to think about the presence of God, being aware of him. Then he makes his way on the other side of the street across this neighbor's lawn, and he kind of stops there. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. I'm trying to think about God. But I'm thinking about this little thief over here. I'm reminded of that scripture in John 10 where Jesus says, I've come to give you a rich and satisfying life. But the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. And then he disappears up the road. And I'm sitting there trying to think about God and focus on God and worship God and be aware of God. In the back of my mind, I'm going, I bet you he's crossing the street into their backyard. I bet you he's going to launch a sneak attack. I can't help myself. I peek around the corner, and sure enough, I see him go all the way across behind me in the backyard. Now I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting for the little thief to show up while I'm trying to worship and be aware of God's presence. And sure enough, what does he do? He comes scampering on this wall right here, and he stops. He's going to make his way for a free breakfast. And I jump up, and I shout at him. Probably woke up half the neighborhood. And I scared the daylights out of him. He scampered off. He crossed the street. I was hoping he'd get run over. Just kidding. And he makes his way back up the tree. Now, why did I tell you that whole story? Because... All of us have squirrels in our lives. We all have things that just keep robbing us and stealing from us the joy of being in the presence of God and worshiping him and knowing him and loving him and being still before him. Whether it's the pandemic, whether it's finances, whether it's the kids, whether it's school, whether it's relational issues, whether it's our job. There are so many things shouting at us that steal us away from being still and knowing that he is God. And listen, only as you're able to be still and know that he's God and know his presence can you become convinced that there's no other explanation for why we're here, why this universe exists. So this week, I've got a little assignment for you that I want you to take and practice because I want you to start to practice the presence of God because it's not all about knowledge. It's also, listen, it's also about relationship. Jesus and a relationship to Jesus is the reason behind this world. So here's the challenge, all right? I want you to listen to the heart of God by reading the small book of 1 John. Very easy. It's only four or five chapters long. You can do it, okay? As you read it, and we'll put this up on the blog so you can get this later on, I want you to just read one chapter a day. Very simple, all right? Number two, I want you to listen for the heart of God and journal what he's telling you about how he thinks and feels about you and pray it back to him. Number three, listen for commands he wants you to obey. Write them down and pray for God to help you to remember and fulfill them in your daily life. Not that hard to do. And last but not least, at the end of the week, share with one person 
your spouse, a friend, your parents, your kids, whoever, share with one person how God worked in and around your life this past week. We're starting our journey, a journey that will change your life forever. And that journey begins with a conviction and belief of who God is and how he wants to transform your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. I pray and ask, Lord, as we begin this journey, that we would listen to your heart and know that you are true and real, that we would surrender ourselves to your presence, that, God, you would help us to ignore the thieves that want to take and steal away the peace that comes from abiding in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.